This week's guest is Spiros Anastas, the current head coach of the Brampton Beast in the ECHL. Spiros has carved himself a remarkable coaching career to date, and at just 35 years of age, is rapidly gaining pro experience and having tremendous success along the way. His wealth of experience has come from working in the NCAA, AHL, ECHL, U Sports, and IIHF tournaments with the Korean and Estonian national teams. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. Please welcome Spiros Anastas. I'm sure we'll, we'll get talking a little bit about my journey and stuff, but I've yeah. found that no matter what level you, you graduate to or, or what success you have, you do run into the same challenges and it's, there's things you can pull back from previous experiences. It really has nothing to do with level. It actually doesn't. Right. But uh, totally. yeah, it's, it's, it's true. We're all kind of in the same boat, especially right now. So. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and, and I have quite a few questions here for you because you have That's such fine. an interesting coaching journey but I guess you know talking about Bert there in your college career to kick it off like it's really interesting looking at you on elite prospects is is you go from being a a uh, NCAA player to immediately becoming an NCAA coach was that something you'd always planned on doing so quickly um and was it difficult to make that decision because we know a lot of players when they leave the game, whether it's to go into coaching or just go into the real world, so to speak, um, it's often, often a difficult transition. How was it for you? Yeah, it was pretty unique, actually. I, I had not planned on it. I'd done this, uh, numerous different things in terms of internships and kind of co-ops during my college year. So I went from trying to have a career in finance, uh, so working on Bay Street, which is the Wall Street of Canada, uh, to uh, interning at an NHL certified agency because I thought maybe that I would give that a try so it was more on the business side like law side that I was always kind of looking towards and then um, I don't know how much Bird has ever said this out there but we had a pretty tumultuous uh, you know college careers in terms of the program and turnover and players and coaches uh, I myself had four different coaches in four wow. different years uh, and we didn't we didn't have a lot of success so it was Really interesting. The coaching actually wasn't planned for me. I, I loved the game. I always was a student of the game because I had to be. I wasn't very skilled. I was just a utility guy that played forward, played defense, killed penalties, blocked shots, and, you know, just did whatever I could to stay on the team. And I was uh, fortunate enough to have opportunities to lead and wear letters. And, and I, I thought that's where my strength was and kind of being almost a little bit of a conduit between uh, the coaching staff and the, and the players. So, no, I, I hadn't planned it at all. And in my senior season, halfway through, they actually released our, our head coach and they promoted the assistant at the time. And the athletic director came to me, approached me, and he, he knew I had been battling some injuries. Uh, one that I was going through over Christmas was potentially season ending. Uh, so we were waiting on word for that. And he kind of presented me with the idea of, hey, would you like to step in behind the bench for the remainder of the season? So I actually was still a student in the school. Um, so that was really challenging because you go from playing with, practicing with, competing with, and, you know, drinking beers with yeah. and living with players one week and literally the, the semester turns over and now I'm, a, I'm 
on the coaching staff with them. So it wasn't planned. It was kind of just by necessity at the time. Uh, I think they were looking for somebody that was a consistency. I was a, I was a captain on the team for all four years. There was so much turnover. Uh, I was a guy that really was always there and, you know, really spoke for my teammates. And, you know, I, in my senior year, I had lost Bert. I was a co-captain of Bert Malloy in my sophomore, my junior year. And we really balanced each other out really well. Like we got along, but we were really different. Like he probably was a little looser and probably drank a few more beers than I did. That's for sure. But, you know, where I was a little bit more serious, but we kind of were always on the same wavelength. So we, you know, my senior year had lost that guy and I was kind of on an island myself uh, as the captain of the team, but it was almost a, a natural transition to be the coach. But it was definitely very difficult because you now you're coaching guys who are your best friends. Um, but, you know, it really made me in that moment think that this was something I want to do for the rest of my life. And I really appreciated the relationships you can build with players and the things you can learn as a coach and how you, the impact you can have on guys day to day. And with how tough our, my senior season was, all I really focused on for that last semester was just making things better, just the experience better. And it was a real cool way to start my coaching career because I didn't dive in on uh, systems and X's and O's and being a hard ass. I just dove in on, Let's just have a good experience. And to this day, as a pro head coach, I, that's still my number one priority. Uh, so I think it kind of started right there by accident almost. Yeah, that's interesting. And did you find it gave you the same fulfillment as hockey did as a player when you're in the coaching role? I think it's the next best thing, in my opinion. Yeah. Like you're, you still get your juices flowing. Like even now, I'm 35, and that's not old by by any means, but a lot older when, than when I played. I stopped playing at 24, so. Uh, but before games, like I'm getting those nervous sweats and I'm, you know, I'm twitching in my desk and even behind the, the bench, I, you know, I can get pacing and stuff like that. So it's not the exact same adrenaline rush in terms of, uh, you know, playing and getting ready for a shift or, you know, facing a guy nose to nose in the corner. But it is an adrenaline rush and seeing your preparation come to life and things you're trying to work on come to fruition in front of you and being able to make that impact on the guys. And then on top of it, when they play for you, when they work for you and believe in what you're trying to, to preach to them, uh, that's a real satisfying uh, feeling. And uh, it's something that you continuously want to grow and chase and continuously get better at. It's just feeling it once when a team executes one of your plans isn't enough. You want just more and more and more. So because of that, I think it's the next best thing to play for sure. Absolutely. Well, look, you've, you've, since starting as a coach, you've quickly climbed the coaching ranks. Once you were, once you'd made that transition, has, has that always been part of your plan? Has it just been good fortune or do you just have that tireless work ethic to, to keep going to the next level? Uh, I think maybe it's a little bit a combination of, of all things. Right? I, I think at the time I started coaching, I thought I was a hard worker as a person, but I you grow um, in levels and as you attain new mentors and, and people you look up to, you actually start to learn what real hard work is about. Uh, and then you pull from those people and you kind of think, okay, I feel like I'm a tireless worker, but this guy has been at this for 20 years. Like I need to match enthusiasm, his working ability. So, uh, you know, I thought I worked really hard and, and tried to live up to the expectations of my boss, head coach I worked under. Um, at the same time, the plan, when you talk about plan, that always changed for me. Like, when I started at Lebanon Valley College, which was my alma mater, which I cared about deeply because I played there for four years, um, you know, I was involved in the student 
community and student government and all that and lifelong friends. My plan at that time was to be the best I could be, but I wanted to be the head coach of that team. And that was it. And I mm -hmm. thought, if I get this head coaching job one day, I can do this for the rest of my life. And it's true. A lot of guys do that. But, you know, then I was afforded the opportunity to move up to Division One uh, and work at Western Michigan University. And then at that time, at 26 years old, I thought, man, like if I could just be a D1 college coach, I could do this for the rest of my life. And then a year later, I'm afforded the opportunity to be an assistant coach at Pro, my first time in Pro, the American Hockey League. And that's where the wheels started turning. Like, let me just keep this going. Like, let's get as far as I can. Uh, but the plan consistently changes because you're at the American Hockey League, which you play in front of 10, 12,000 fans a game. It's the next best level in, in North America. And you're, you're just that one step away. But then it's switched my mind again. Like, now I want to be a head coach. But to be a head coach, I got to take a few steps down. So the plan is ever-evolving. But I think the, the focus on, like you said, working hard, continuing to learn, uh, and build those relationships is what has helped me move, you know, forward in the game. And a lot of it is luck in a sense. I don't really love the word luck. I think you, you create your own opportunities A preparation opportunity to meet each other. That's what, what luck is. Right. And, uh, every job that I've come across, I can connect it back to almost one moment in my career. Uh, and it's from meeting one person and that person giving me a chance, but then it was up to me to impress on that person and do that work for that person and, and show my value. So it's a combination of all things from the work ethic to the plan to the just great fortune. Uh, I think good people who work hard and continuously learn um, kind of attribute all those things to it. So that, I can't pinpoint one thing, but I've been very fortunate to, to grow in this game. Yeah, I like what you said there about when you first started uh, with your college team and, and how at that moment that was almost your dream job if you could just be a kind of a head coach at, at that level for life and I think that's important for coaches just to be present right like with that team even though you may want to move on if you're a young coach it's just really determined to get somewhere <clears throat> being present with the team that you're currently working with and just enjoying that and focusing on doing that job really well and, and kind of making those steps when they happen instead of trying to do that really well, but rush to the next level, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's the biggest piece of advice. Like, uh, you know, one thing about this pandemic, I've, I've done a few of these podcasts and got to talk to a lot of coaches uh, and everyone always asked me for kind of a, a piece of advice and advice that I've gotten from some really great people. And Jeff Blaschel, who's the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings and Jeff Ward, who now coaches Calgary, who, who I never knew. I just, reached out to them this spring just to ask his advice on, on a couple of things. And they all say that you got to treat the job you're in as the most important job you're ever going to have. And uh, it's so true. And, I, and I've been guilty of not doing that at times. I've been guilty of thinking too far ahead and what's next and where I can be. But it is really important to think the job you're in. Is it one that you're okay being in for a long time? Is it one that you'd be uh, motivated for every day? And it's not just that, the job dictates that you also dictate that. And, uh, you know, that's a real important piece because that'll help you enjoy your journey at the time, be present for your team and your players, but also it'll help you hone your craft and better. And that's when people notice you. So I think you're right on the money there. It's just being as present as you can be. So you've, you know, working with all these coaches, especially at the high levels that you've coached in, and you now have 
an extensive coaching resume, but you've always been one of, if not the youngest coach in each league you've worked in. When you walk into a new team environment as a young coach, what are the, some, some of the things you do early on to establish yourself and create that level of, of trust or credibility with the players? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because this past season, the 1920 season was the first season uh, where there was a full season or a short-term competition that I wasn't the youngest coach behind a bench wow. Wow. in my position. So as fi I finally got there in my 11th year of coaching. So that was, it, <laughs> it was nice to feel like I grew up a little bit. But I think that's a great question because it can be a real kind of thin ice scenario of that first impression you make, especially as a young guy, especially as a guy that played but then you know didn't play in the NHL didn't play in the American League or have extensive you know or any pro playing experience so the the biggest thing I do and it might sound really simple is just it's just listen that's how I build the credibility that's how I build those relationships like the first thing I do when I got get a new job whether it was at the University of Lethbridge my first head coaching job or uh, South Carolina uh, my first pro head coaching job or now in Brampton it was just reach out to the key players on the team, whether they're leaders, guys that have been there a, a long time, uh, even a couple new guys who are big signings. Reach out to them and listen to what they have to say. And there's so much you can learn from them in terms of their expectations, things they think they can get better at, uh, things that have been great and they don't want to be changed, and just the culture of, of being part of that organization, uh, what needs to be held over and what needs to be changed. And, that's the way I've found success in establishing those relationships and that credibility, especially with the older guys. The captain here in Brampton is a year younger than me. And he played 400 American League games and he'd been in the ECHL a long time. He'd been drafted in the NHL. He, he's done it all. He played in the KHL. So to me, rather than bring him into an office and introducing myself and start just splurting everything that I'm going to do for him, I met him at a Starbucks and I just, just listen for an hour and a half. And it's amazing to see how much the players care about what you have to say when they, they know you've been listening and people, and that's a, that's a, it's a quote that I've taken from Andy Murray. One of my, my mentors, he said, people tend to hear more when they know you've been listening. So that's, that's the first step. And it's nothing like it's, it's not some rocket science. It's not me trying to show them that I'm a genius in the game or anything like that. It's just simply listening. And it goes a long way and you can build those relationships right away. That's great advice, really great advice, particularly here in Australia where we have a lot of coaches who um, perhaps enter the game later in life um, and are really good coaches, but they, they perhaps don't have that extensive playing career at a high level. Um, so, you know, they're always looking for what can they do as a coach to establish themselves. But I really like that, just listening to your players uh, because ultimately at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to, have to kind of work with you because they're going to be the ones performing, right? Yeah. And it is stressful situation when you feel we're all human beings, right? So as positive mm -hmm. they, as we all are, as some people have more confidence than others, some people swagger, some people don't, and there's no right way to be, but we all are human beings. So at times we feel insecure. And if you haven't played or if you've gotten the game late or you're a new coach or you're younger than players on your team, there's going to be insecurities there, but it, yeah, like it's just, making it up they'll they'll sniff you out right away if they think you're just making things up to try and prove a point that you know they'll sniff you out they, they players at all levels they're smart whether it's the new generational players or the old school players they know they, they can sniff out a fraud pretty quickly so 
I actually always say there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know, but I don't know and I'll find out, or I don't know and, and let's find mm. let's together. And I think players right away will, will, will believe in you that you're actually genuine in what you want to do for them and the team. So, yeah, it's a simple, it's a simple science, really. It's just uh, we're all in it together, and you don't need to big time or big man anybody uh, lean on people for help. And that may be technically your subordinate and your player, but it, that's what great people do in hockey, outside of hockey. Great CEOs hire people who are smarter than them for that reason, right? So, um, yeah, it's something I really believe in. It's helped me at least. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and honesty is the best policy. So you moved from uh, from being an assistant coach with a very successful Grand Rapids team in the American Hockey League, winning Calder Cup, um, to, to be the head coach at the University of Lethbridge uh, in 2014. How excited were you to finally get that role? Well, I say finally, you got there really quickly, but you know your desire to be a head coach, you finally get your own program. And at the university level, as you know, it really is that, your own program. How exciting was that for you? Yeah, I was really excited. Lots happened in that summer leading into the 14-15 season. Um, I got married. I bought my first house in Lethbridge after I got the job, obviously. So there were a lot. There was a lot changing in my life. Uh, so it was really just exciting in whole. But uh, it was, you know, it was a little bit stressful at times too because you, you know, you're in a you're in a really good spot. You're part of a successful team great city, great fans. You're under the umbrella of one of the best sports organizations in North America and the Detroit Red Wings. And you're coaching with a guy that was destined to coach in the NHL, Jeff Blasio. So leaving that sometimes cutting that cord is, is, you know, it's scary at times, but I knew I wanted to be a head coach. I was fortunate that uh, Mike Babcock and Bill Peters, who at the time were coaching with the Detroit Red Wings, that they had started their careers at the University of Lethbridge. So I was fortunate to have an in there. They knew me as a 29-year-old and wanted to be a head coach. There's not many opportunities to do that at such a young age. It's really rare. So when they kind of directed me in that, that, uh, that area, that, you know, that level of hockey and that, uh, you know, Lethbridge, Alberta, which I couldn't even point on a map previous to that point, uh, it was a real great opportunity. So I was super excited. Uh, but definitely very raw. A lot smacked me in the face real early. There were times that I questioned myself, like, why the heck did I do this? Uh, but it was the best possible learning experience for me because I took over a program that was really poor. Uh, it had been averaging like two two wins a year for the previous wow. two or three seasons. Uh, so they were, they were kind of rock bottom. Uh, so there was no place to go but up. Uh, it was a great level of hockey, but not one that was – heavily scrutinized in the media or got a lot yeah. of attention. So I was free to make tons of mistakes, which I did tons of mistakes, especially my first year, but use them as, as learning points and growing, growing moments rather than being worried about the judgment in the media and stuff like that. So it, while it was stressful at times, it was really exciting to, to get my feet wet and, and build something that was mine over a course of four years. Yeah. And very underrated hockey. I've, I've, uh, I've seen a lot of it, CIS or U Sports as it is now, and, and I think it's probably one of the most underrated uh, levels of hockey in North America. But you, like when you started a program like that, <clears throat> sorry, what are some things that you first implement? So you've listened to your players. What are the first things you implement when it comes to culture, identity, or habits? So, 
you know, I, I listened to my players. I talked to my players. I got there a little bit late because I, when I accepted the job in April, I was still with the Grand Rapids Griffins and we went on a decently lengthy uh, playoff run to try and defend our Calder Cup. But we, we lost out to the eventual Calder Cup champions that year, but we were still pretty deep into May. And then again, I was getting married. So I didn't get to Lethbridge till August. First season was going to be kind of a feeling out process. I honored everybody's scholarships. I honored everyone's position on the team and just kind of used the entirety of that season to learn from them. But the biggest thing that I brought in, again, really simple. Like I don't, and I apologize if I don't have any complex answers for you, but I, no, I do, no, this simple I do think it's a simple science and a simple game, but the number one thing I wanted to make sure that players knew that I was looking for was just good guys. And it almost became just a, like a saying, like, just be a good guy. Like, you know, just, just be a good guy. Like if you make a mistake, just be a good guy about it with your teammate. Or if he makes a mistake, be a good guy. When you walk in this room, be a good guy. When you're in class, yeah. be a good guy. When you're at a party or a club, be a good guy. And it, 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 as general and as vague as that is, that was what I wanted to establish because unfortunately that program had become a room of guys that weren't being good guys. I'm not saying they didn't have the ability to, uh, but they weren't maybe guided in the right direction or they were too far gone. And I just wanted good people. Um, the second thing that was a little bit more performance specific is when I went in there, I noticed that all the top teams sports across the country, they were very heavy on major junior experience. Guys that played in the OHL, WHL, QMJHL. Mm -hmm. uh, Lethbridge, unfortunately, didn't have a lot of guys. There was maybe three, four guys with that kind of experience. So over the course of the next two years, my recruiting plan was first get guys with just those games played. I didn't care how many points they got, if they were part of championships teams, if they were good guys and they had three, four, five years of WHL, OHL experience, get them in because it's just a different level of hockey. And then from there, as we grew, uh, those guys started recruiting their buddies who were also guys and guys that may have been better producers at that level. So we went from, I think that when I took over, we had 450 games played of major junior experience on our roster. And by the time I left the University of Lethbridge, we were clear over 3,500 games played. Wow. So that was, kind of, that was my first like kind of recruiting idea. Like that's what I got to get to before I focused on getting impact. Players. At the end of the day, the top players don't want to come to the worst program. You have to slowly yeah. build that, right? So, yeah. you know, that was my recruiting specific model but it always came back to just being a good guy. And after that first season, we, we went five and 23, which believe it or not was over a hundred percent improvement from the previous year. Uh, but obviously not where I wanted to be, but I knew it was going to be a season like that. Uh, the day after our season ended, I cut 18 guys and I just started from, not from scratch. I kept some really good players that had earned it and showed that they were willing to change and, and buy into the new culture. But uh, I just knew in going into my second year, I had to make a splash, and that's what we did. And we steadily improved every year until uh, we got to the point where the University of Lethbridge was awarded the host bid for the national championship. Um, but unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, I was, I was provided the opportunity to take my first head coaching job prior to that season. So uh, I, I didn't get to see that through, but I was really proud that the university and the program had gotten to a respectable level where they were granted to host a national championship and play in it, which was something that was probably not even thought of four years prior. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's massive. Season at a time. Yeah. Something real, real proud of. But I love what you said there. Just, just focus on being good guys and as simple as that is, but I find that's uh, 
doing the right thing off the ice is directly related to doing the right thing on the ice. And I find that whether it's discipline in details of just being on time, or like you said, just being a good, good guy and a good teammate, if you can start doing those things off the ice and make it a habit, I always find that it just, it just translates directly to being a good, good teammate, being disciplined on the ice. And I think players sometimes don't think that early on. They think, well, I can switch it on when it comes to game time and I can just live my life off the ice. But um, as you know, and as you said, when you get to the next level, it's those two things are just connected. Yeah, they really are. And it's hard to train guys to, to see the value of that too, because it's not just with your teammates, like especially in a university setting, like having professors on your side, administrators on your side, fellow students on your side, like it, it helps you. It's hard to connect the dots see how it's going to help you on the scoreboard in a particular game but everything's connected from fan support to leniency on you know I got to take my exam I get to take it on the Monday after the weekend rather than being forced to take it the Friday before the weekend like that all affects your mentality going into a big two-game series against another university well if you're not a good guy your professor's not going to give you that, that you know yeah. that opportunity to, to take an exam at a different time so it was really like a long kind of season and a half process to get the guys to start connecting those dots that everything matters and you're always wearing that crest on your chest even when you're not wearing that jersey so yeah as simple as it is just being a good guy goes a long way and even in our profession as coaches like there's been times I'm not perfect there's been times I haven't been a good guy and I've been called out um, and there's probably going to be times in my career that's going to happen again but the ability to recognize it and then readjust yourself uh, and improve yourself is, is really important because when you're not a good guy, things go bad. And I've, I've faced that firsthand. I really have. Yeah. And then, and like you said, that starts with recruiting. So I'm, I'm really curious because in your role as uh, head coach of a, a university program, you're responsible for recruiting and on ice performance. Which role is more difficult? Which role takes up more of your time? And which role is most directly related to the team's success? recruiting or coaching the team? Yeah, it's, that's a tough question to answer and it's a really good one. I think recruiting, if I had to pick one, if I was forced to, it'd probably be recruiting. Uh, it's, a, it's a game where just building that roster to a level where then your coaching ability can take over is such a necessity. Um, you know, not to discredit what we do in our jobs, but I think a coach makes marginal important but marginal differences a coach can make a good team great a coach can make an okay team good uh a, you know a good team overly competitive you can make those marginal differences that make a huge impact on your results but without your without the players it's rare i don't think there's not many teams that can be named outside of disney movies where a coach takes a real shitty team and makes them unbelievably great it's that it, it it's, it's, that is what it is. It's a Disney movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I do think coaching is important, coaching those habits, that culture, um, how, you know, the style of play, but getting those players in that, are, that have the ability to understand it, buy into it, um, enforce it themselves and take that self-accountability was really important. So recruiting was a major part of my job and a real difficult part of the job, especially when you're at a small market school that hasn't had a ton of success uh, that doesn't have the highest budget either. But that's what I spend probably most of my time on. Even in season, when the WHL season's going on, season, or even the Tier 2 Junior Leagues, like the BCHL, AJHL, 
you got to constantly be talking to coaches, GMs, players, agents. Um, and it was a real tough, tough thing to do while you're, while you're coaching that the team that you have currently, but, uh, it was so important, probably the most important. And I've always said for me, at least in North America, I, I can't speak to every corner of the earth, but the two hardest hockey coaching jobs in North America are the uh, CIS or U sports and the ECHL. Uh, the ECHL is very much like a Canadian university in terms of the, the amount of hats that a coach wears, the recruiting mm -hmm. do, and the, just all the other jobs that sometimes take, take priority over the actual thing that is in our title of coaching, uh, you know, from organizing buses to travel to meals. Uh, and in this U sports side, the academic, and the ECHL side, the immigration, the, the living, the housing. Um, so those jobs are very similar. And it was an easy transition for me into pro at the ECHL level because of that. But recruiting is number one. Uh, you got to get those players in. And it's not just about stats, not just about uh, them being fantastic on-ice performers. It's right about the first thing we just started talking about is being a good guy and a good person that's going to buy into your program and what you're trying to Yeah. And that's so, must be so time-consuming because you don't always see that on the surface, right? You got to really do some digging on those people to, to find out really what they're like because... Hockey players, well, for hockey players for the longest time, but I find especially this young generation of hockey players, they're very well trained and they know exactly what to say. They know exactly what they think you want to hear. Um, and they can all put on a good front. So even the guys who aren't so good will often appear like really good, genuine guys, you know, at first look. It's not till you do the digging and, and really kind of quiz them or give them a good scrub that you find, you know, you find some warts. Yeah, you're 100% right there. Like, you're right on the money in terms of hockey players can be quite robotic at times. Um, mm. You know, you don't see the personalities as much as you do in other sports, whether it be, uh, you know, soccer or basketball or football. You, you see a little bit more personalities there, and sometimes those sports are scrutinized because of that. But I think that hockey players at times, while they can be some of the best people on earth, sometimes they can be a little bit robotic. When I uh, coached hockey out, uh, Team Alberta and did some work with, Hockey Canada, there was actually training sessions on what to say to the media, what to say to people. So you really do need to dig deep, uh, you know, beneath that surface to find out about players and their character. And it's not just talking about the coach they're currently playing for or the organization. You got to go back a few years. You got to talk to teammates or even players who played against them. Like, what were they like on the ice? It's not just like, not if they were chirping that they were a bad guy, but what are the kind of things they said? What were the kind of things they complained about? Um, yeah, there's a lot of vetting that needs to be done and due diligence. And, and while players never want to throw anyone else under the bus, I think that's a real important part of our culture. You can tell when they're trying their hardest not to throw somebody under the bus. <laughs> yeah. In contrast to just being a really great reference for someone. You could just tell. Yeah. So you got you know, you to do that homework on players. And that is really time-consuming. It really is. And, uh, you know, if you're just going off – and unfortunately, there are a lot of teams, whether it's uh, university or pro, that we that are their coaches are referred to as elite prospects or hockey DB recruiters. Um, mm. They hear a name, they pull up that page, they see the numbers, the plus minus, and they say, "Oh yeah, okay, we'll take them." And that it never works, man. It just it never yeah. does. So um, you got to do a lot of work behind it. And I think it's at every level. 
when I coached Team Alberta, which was all newly drafted WHL players, first, second rounders, uh, you know, six of those guys that I coached NHL draft picks. But the amount of work we put in with the coach uh, director, with the director of operations, with the head scout, we had an 80 man camp or 80 kid camp because they were 15 years old, these kids. Yeah. But to find out about their personalities, the phone interviews we did, it's so important. And we left off top 10 picks, WHL picks off that Team Alberta team uh, because they just passed a sniff test of what we were trying to accomplish. So it's, it's really important and you have to do it at every level. Yeah, so important. Well, look, I'm curious that now you, you've coached uh, professional players and you've, you've worked a lot with university level student athletes. Do you find that student athletes are more receptive to learning or understanding tactics or concepts because they're in that studying or learning environment with their academics? Uh, I, yeah, you know what? I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think, I think there are some guys that are, I think some guys are just good students, uh, whether it's students in a classroom or students of the game. And maybe you're, you're more likely to find those kind of guys in the university setting. But there's a real difference between coaching a team where everyone on the team, it's their profession and they're doing it to earn a paycheck or keep advancing up levels to a team that half the guys are, know that this is their last hurrah. Half the guys are only doing it so they can get their education. And the other, and the other third, I should say half, half and half, the thirds um, are doing it again to pro. So the, the unique thing about coaching university level is you get a lot of different guys at different stages of their career. Some guys know that's the end of it. Some guys are just doing it to get their education. Some guys want to continue playing pro and they're only there for hockey. So it's, it's yes and no there because it's hard to pull guys in the right direction sometimes when they know they're on their last legs of their career and yeah. that they're, they're already thinking into what's next. Like I'm getting my business degree and then I'm going to get my MBA and then I'm going to open my business or take over the family business. So to sit that guy down and really hammer him hard on how he needs to be a better player, especially in his last season. I'm not saying they all just disregard it, but there you run into some roadblocks there. So um, yeah, I don't know if I can really answer that question because some guys, yes, some guys know, but at the pro level, you got some guys that are so keen on jumping to the American League or, or they, they've gone to a point where they can't do anything else yet in their life. So this is their livelihood. This is what puts food on the table. So they need to continuously get better and protect their spot in the organization. So I find them to be more keen to, to get better for the team or, or put in the work for video sessions and stuff. And, and it is their full-time job, so they have more time to as well. So I, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say the pro players are still more likely to want to learn more. Yeah, interesting, interesting. But I like, as you said, really, then the end of the day, it's up to the player. Like if they decide, then, uh, then, then they can switch on and learn it. Um, while we close on Lethbridge, what was your most enjoyable moment from your time with that program? Uh, I think the first time that we we beat uh, the University of Alberta in Edmonton, it was a very uh, tough task to uh, to conquer. Uh, within a season in itself, it doesn't happen very often, whether you're a top other team like the University of Saskatchewan or University of Calgary uh, or like us, University of Lethbridge. We, we hadn't the program hadn't beat them. So we beat them. It was during this, the 16, 17 season, I believe. Uh, we beat them overtime at the Claire Drake arena in Edmonton. 
And it was the first time I believe in 12 seasons or somewhere along those lines that it had happened. Uh, And then, so that was just a really enjoyable moment. We, uh, we were fortunate to go on a four on three power play uh, early in the overtime and we executed perfectly and we scored and the guys just, they went nuts and it was uh, a happy bus ride home. And luckily Edmonton's not too far from Lethbridge. So the guys had enough time to go celebrate in Lethbridge as well. But it was a real memorable time because it was one of those, you, know, you don't get a trophy for that. You don't get in the record books for that. But it was, it was a moment that really showed us like, wow, we've come a long way. We had beat them twice already at home uh, over the pre, over the, over that season, uh, which was a first in itself. But to go into that hostile environment where my first season, my first two years, we lost games there like 10 to one, 11 to one. They're the best. They're just the best program in history of, of Canadian University. And uh, to beat them just the one time in four years, but to beat them there, it just showed where our program had come and the excitement that our players uh, showed that they, they were part of something special. And they, they brought a program that was winning two games a year to a team that was winning 10, 11 games a year, still not the best team in the conference, but, but being able to compete with the best team in the country uh, was really special. So I'd say that that was probably the best memory at the University of Lethbridge for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think everyone kind of almost all over the world has heard about University of Alberta and just how dominant they've been. And, um, you know, even with the Flames, uh, Derek Ryan there is, is a, a grad of University of Alberta. So for a player to go from that program a long path to get there, but end up in the NHL just shows how strong that program is. And so that, that must've been awesome to get that win. Um, we'll get that first win in Edmonton. So I want to move on now to your international coaching experience, because you have a large amount of experience coaching the Korean and Estonian national teams at the IIHF world championships. What was it? Well, how did that come to be? What was it like? But particularly, what was that like? Because I imagine there's a pretty big language barrier working with both those countries. Yeah, so it, it came to be when I left uh, the Grand Rapids Griffins after the 13-14 uh, season. It was, the other assistant coach, Jim Pack, also left. Uh, and it was at my wedding, actually, uh, before I went to the University of Lethbridge, that he, he approached me and said, he had notified me that I'm, I'm also leaving Grand Rapids and I'm taking the head coaching position with the Korean national program. And he's, he was the first Asian born NHL player. He was born in Korea. Uh, he's, he was a Canadian. He, he grew up in Canada and that's where he obviously, uh, you know, developed as a hockey player, but parents were born in, in Korea. So he, he was given the opportunity to take over that program with four years out from hosting the Olympics. Uh, so at my wedding, actually, we just were talking by one of the late night food, you know, stations or whatever it was. And yeah. he just said to me, he's like, what's the schedule like at, you know, at the University of Lethbridge or CIS hockey? And I said, you know what, you, it's going to be an adjustment for me because, you know, we've had two really long seasons with the Grand Rapids Griffins. We play into May and June. You win the whole damn thing in CIS, you're done second week of March. Like that's, that's a very short season, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so he said, well, how would you like to you know, help me out in the spring. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I, I need, you know, I, I want somebody I can trust with the Korean national program. So I'd like to bring you on as my assistant coach of the men's national team. I said, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what that entailed, what it meant. I was like, well, when are the tournaments normally? They're like, well, end of March, early April, we do a two week training camp, whatever it is. So if you're, 
no offense I, or no secret, I, I knew I wasn't going to win the national championship. So our season in Lethbridge was actually done in February, right? So right. I, I was like, all right, I can commit to this. And it kept me coaching a little longer. It was a real unique life experience for me. So, you know, I went that, that August, uh, which was a month after my wedding, uh, to, to Korea for like an opening training camp and press conference to, introducing Jim Pack and stuff like that. And then just through that, then it kind of grew like, hey, you know, you want to coach the U18 team as well. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll take that on as well. So it was just kind of just through Jim Pack. I worked with him for two, two years. I learned a lot from him. He was a you know, two-time Stanley Cup winger, winner with the Pittsburgh Penguins, NHL defenseman. He coached in the American League for nine years in Grand Rapids as an assistant. So he and I became really good friends, obviously, to the point where he, he came to my wedding. So I was just more just started there just to help him out. And the initial goal was for me to help him through the course of the four years and, and be by his side for the Olympics. But you, know, you start having children and, uh, you know, you start kind of getting more involved in your full-time job that puts food on the table for those children. I after two years, I, I couldn't do it anymore, but uh, it was an incredible experience. And it was like, I tell every coach, like coaching a, a IIHF tournament, doesn't matter what level, whether it's, you know, the championship level or D2A or even D3 or whatever it is, just that, you know, that, that IHF music that plays during warmups and the anthems after, and just the, the, just the symbolism and the images of, of people work, working to, accomplish something for their country is so cool. So it was a really cool experience for me to do that for two years with South Korea. And then after my second year, we had had our second child. Um, that's where I kind of told Korea like, Hey, you know, I, it's been great, but can't really do it, you know, anymore. And Jimmy had some other options with some Korean background coaches that were really developing. So it kind of was a better fit than a Canadian guy being on the bench with them anyway. Um, the Estonians reached out to me and, and I'd won a, a U18 gold medal in Estonia and I'd met some of their delegates and stuff like that. And they reached out to me and at first I declined and then they, they said, you long. Cause when I went to Korea, I'd be, I'd be gone for 12 weeks. Uh, but the Estonians said, you know, you'd only come for two weeks at a time and this and that. So they convinced me to, to help them out for a, a year. And that was cool. Um, when it comes to the language barrier, it, it wasn't as bad as a lot of people would think uh, the U18s, in Korea was the only time I needed a full interpreter. Um, those kids had never really been out of Korea. They were really uh, intertwined in their culture. They were high school hockey players. So all they spoke was Korean. And, you know, that was difficult at first, but then eventually we got to a point where we were all speaking the same hockey language, which was really uh, unique. And they started to understand me. The pros in Korea, because there's so many imports, like each of those teams had like five, six imports, they had understood a lot more English. And, and Jimmy, being of Korean background, he didn't speak a lot of Korean. So he, he communicated with it in English as well. Okay. So it wasn't so bad with the pros. In Estonia, uh, surprisingly, every one of those players, with the exception of maybe two or three that were from Narva, which is a very heavy, heavy Russian area, uh, they all spoke English. Uh, Estonians are very much like Finnish people, in a sense, uh, they, they speak a ton of languages. Like all those kids spoke like Russian, Estonian, Swedish, Finnish, and English. So uh, there actually wasn't much of a language barrier there at all. The challenge there, though, was that Estonia uh, was a country that didn't 
that had trouble finding its own identity. Uh, a lot of people identified with being kind of Nordic and, you know, on the same line as the Finnish and the Swedish. Some of them identified as being like Baltic, like the Lithuanians and the Latvians. And they were, there was a part, Narva, that I'd already mentioned that were just straight still USSR. Like it was, right. so uh, although they all spoke English, it was sometimes just combating that challenge of getting Russians to deal with as I had felt like they had a Finnish background or true Estonian mm -hmm. background. And, and it was, that was a real uh, eye-opening experience for me too, because I went in there and tried to mix and match lines to get guys that complemented each other on a skill basis. And I was quickly told, no, 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 no. Like the three Russians <laughs> got to play with each other and the three Estonians got to play with each other and the three kids playing junior in Sweden, they got to play with each other. And I was oh, like, wow. oh, okay. So that was more of a challenge than the language barrier, but unbelievable experiences got to see the world. Uh, I would recommend it for anybody that can get involved, whether it's a, an assistant coach or video coach or team manager, you can be part of one of those tournaments. It's, it's just amazing. I, I lo loved it. And I hope I could do it again. One day. It's yeah, it's special for sure. With those tournaments, it's uh, you usually, and like you said, two weeks, I think uh, they're in Korea, but usually have a, a small amount of preparation time. Um, how did you find that? And was there anything that you had done in your North, with your North American experience that prepared you well for that? Uh, well, previous, previous to Korea, no, I had never had a short-term competition experience. Uh, so that was my first time with the, with the U18s. Um, it, was, it was really interesting because I, I didn't know how to approach it, along with the other challenges of not speaking their language and having a different style of play. When Jimmy came in and Richard Park, former NHLer, was the other assistant on the men's program, and myself, we really wanted to talk about how we can improve Koreans defensively. Um, look back prior to 2014 prior to Jimmy taking over as a director of hockey and coaching and everything there they were always fast they were always skilled Koreans are very well built strong people but anytime they won or anytime they got promoted in their respective groups it was by winning eight to six it was by winning you know six, five games like there you just outscore the other team was the the goal uh, so for us going into that more based on how we improved the men's program, but I also had the U18 program, was we got to teach goal line out, minimize the goals against. Uh, so for me, it was like, look, I only got a short period of time. I got a two-week training camp with these kids. I got to teach habits that are going to help them be better defensively. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily D-zone structure, D-zone tactic. It was just the habits, like stick on puck, uh, you know, angling, uh, you know, just – you know, active feet in the D zone, not, not, you know, getting off the net as a defenseman. And it almost became stick on puck became a joke in the Korean locker room. It was the one English sentence that they, they could get. Right. So they'd just be yelling, stick on puck, stick on puck. And, and that's, and that's, we, we focused so much on that. We knew it, they had skill. We gave them a skeleton on things like power play breakouts, entries, four check, because they were good at that stuff. Cause they all wanted, they believed, five forwards like that's what they wanted to be right uh they want to just go five guys on the rush so i knew that they were going to be keen on on learning those systems but it was just habits that's all it was angling stick on puck uh, defensive posture the direction of their feet need to be in the d zone and how to use all five guys to get out of the zone and then worry about offense so that was my main focus there but i never had experience like it so it was a learning experience for me too yeah it's 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 tough with that short preparation, right? Like you really have to, as a coach, prioritize what's most important because there's so much you'd love to roll out. 
Um, I know I've worked with teams where they've thought, well, look, special teams is, is the most important. Other teams have, have, uh, have wanted to work on some offensive tactics, whether it's zone entries or whatever else. But do you find that um, apart from just that team, do you find all teams you've worked with in that short-term tournament scenario, do you find that's a common theme where defensive tactics is the priority? I, I think so. I, I do think special teams has a big importance too because they could be real game changers, especially mm. some of the officiating at short-term competitions yeah. like IHF level, like it's very tight uh, and you're getting officials from different countries. So I don't know if they were trying to one up each other or, or whatever <laughs> it is, but you can get, you know, you can get six power plays a piece a game. So obviously that's going to, your PK and your PP is going to make a difference. But I, I think in those situations, I think defensive habits breed a culture as well. So it's more than just focusing on defense. It's just so focusing on sacrifice and buying in and 200 foot game. So you can, when you touch on those defensive habits and those, those systems, you can touch on a lot of things of what style of play you need to be to be successful. And uh, even when I was coaching team Alberta, we had a full of studs like these are like I said a bunch of those guys are drafted in the NHL right now those 2001 birth years yeah um at the time they were top WHL draft picks best players in the province of Alberta all first line players for all their midget AAA teams now you got to get them focused on playing a team game well is showing them how to score more goals getting them to focus on a team game like these are all studs that are going to score goals mm -hmm. so we really focused on on habits and uh, you know, starting from our goal line out. So I don't know if it's so much more the emphasis on, on being a defensive team or just showing them that we have to be a 200 foot team that's going to sacrifice for each other. And that typically starts in your end, right? So uh, it just kind of all blended together there. And that's just my tactic. Other teams are, are different and have success in other ways, but that's kind of how I've approached it with the short term competition. Yeah, so in those competitions, you're, you're playing other countries and often um, you might have a chance to either play or watch those other countries play in an exhibition game pre-tournament. Uh, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes the countries just show up day one. They might have done their training camp elsewhere. How do you go with building a pre-scout against those teams when you may not have seen them or you may have only seen them in exhibition action? Or do you more focus on yourselves? Yeah, early in the tournament, you try and focus on yourself. The way we were fortunate to structure, so I'll use just one tournament as an example, that you Team tournament 2015 in it was in Estonia uh, with Koreans. So obviously the big emphasis was our style of play, what we're going to do to get uh, the British who we played first to react to our game. But we also were smart in a sense that we set up our one exhibition game against them. So we we got a we got a free look of not just watching them in an exhibition game but playing against them, mm. and it was. It was a dumpster fire for both sides. Like it was just a brutal game. Uh, but we got to see who their strengths were, what their top line was, where the holes in their game were. So we, we pulled a little bit from there. But even so, that was just a one sample, one off. Um, and, and I know that if they were pre-scouting us off that game, that they weren't getting the full story, just like I'm sure I didn't get the full story from them. So mm. those tournaments, the first game, I really do focus on kind of what we're trying to accomplish. Like, how we're going to make a statement because those subdivision tournaments, as you know, like the championship level, they're not like USA and Canada they, that play the preliminaries and the playoff rounds, every game playoff game, because you only play those five games. Yeah. So you get to make a, a statement right away 
and put ourselves kind of on the map for the tournament and grow early momentum. So we focused just on ourselves. But then as the tournament went, you know, the next game was against Croatia. So I got to see them, their exhibition game, plus the first tournament game. And then as it went, the, the pre-scouts got more detailed. And then on the fifth game, we had played Poland, which just so happened that the winner of that game wins a gold medal. Now I've seen them an exhibition game plus four tournament games. Mm. And that was obviously the game that meant the most at that time. Now we obviously put ourselves in that position, but there was a lot more detailed pre-scout in terms of what to expect, who the big guns were, uh, what systems are going to be thrown our way. But we still focused on us, like how we got to get them <clears throat> dictated by us, not us dictated by them. And I kind of I operate myself that way even in the 72 game series. I, I think it's important to know what you might see and what may be thrown at you, but it's your game that needs to be executed. If you can dictate the pace of play and the style of play over a course of 60 minutes, you have a better chance of winning the hockey game. So, so yeah, just to answer your question, it, it just started off more focused with us. And then as this tournament went on, we had more detail. And I think sometimes it is just, it's a little bit arbitrary. Sometimes you just got to do something to get the team know that you're prepared. Uh, they want to know their coaches are prepared. They want to know that they're prepared. So, you know, obviously we saw Poland a ton. So I had a lot more information. Great Britain, we didn't see a ton, but I got as much information. One or two things I, I thought the players could read or see through video that thought, all right, this is our advantage. And sometimes it's just a mental game as a coach too. Just get them to feel that preparation. Right. And uh, yeah. that's, so that's how I approached it there that in that singular tournament. And we were fortunate that we won all five games and, never let up more than two goals that tournament. So we accomplished our, our, our goal of making them a better defensive team as well. So that's impressive. That's really impressive. Look, I want to talk now about your current role as head coach um, of Brampton in the East Coast Hockey League. That's a league that regularly, like you said, has players moving up down to the AHL or even the NHL. What's the objective of a head coach in the East Coast Hockey League? winning or development and how do you how do you balance those two yeah it's it's interesting because unlike my time in in the american league where the entirety of the hockey operations was was run and controlled by the detroit red Wings, we are in the echl we're affiliated with the ottawa senators um but we run our own hockey operations we're owned by a separate owner um we our contracts are only yearly contracts, the ones that are signed to ECHL deals. Uh, so we have people that we have to satisfy on both ends. The Ottawa Senators want us to develop their players to have them call up ready for Belleville, uh, call up ready for Ottawa, um, develop for future. If, if they have a goalie with us, they may not, Ottawa may not see that goalie for four years, but they want them to have a great first pro experience in Brampton. So we have to keep them happy in that sense. But at the same time, we have our own ownership, our own fans, our own hockey operations department where we have to win. The ECHL is a win now uh, league. So my assistant coach and I are very big on development, uh, ongoing development through the season. And there's no better way to develop than winning. And I, I saw that firsthand and probably took it from my experience in Grand Rapids. We won the Calder Cup in 2013, and you look at how many guys made the NHL from that 2012-13 Grand Rapids Griffins team. Uh, how many guys played for the Detroit Red Wings and now are currently playing on, on different teams. Um, the team we beat in that Calder Cup final, who was the previous season's Calder Cup championship, the Syracuse Stars, how many of those guys are currently playing for the Tampa Bay Lightning 
or, or sorry, the Syracuse Crunch. How many of them are playing for the Tampa Lightning or somewhere else mm. in the NHL? Um, so winning really does help develop, but we put a big focus on constant development through the season. So we try and just make it one thing. We don't want to say like, we don't want to have two different hats where we're saying, okay, now we got to really develop their skills and now we got to really focus on winning. We want to connect the two, get our players to understand that when we're working on this drill or this skill session or this group meeting or video session, it's to help us win because you're getting better as a player. And, you know, we do it, we take a, a, a kind of a macro approach. We want to develop people, we want to develop individual players. And within that, satisfying our responsibility to the Ottawa Senators. I do think you can fall into a, a, a really dangerous trap if you're only focused. If we have seven guys that are on NHL or AHL contracts, and we think we got to develop these guys for Ottawa and Belleville, well, are you neglecting the other guys, right? Mm-hmm. So we just take a, a wholesome approach of we got to develop everybody for our own good, their own good. And then because of that, we're, we're fulfilling our responsibility of the, of the Ottawa Senators affiliation. So we just, we just do it daily. The amount of time we put in, in video sessions, the individual meetings, the player evaluation, uh, the segments that we do, the, the analytics that we do aren't, aren't to an NHL level, but we have little things that we measure our team's successes. And then the skill that we try and incorporate in our daily practices, our, our structure, our systems, um, it's just constant development. And when I find when the players are feeling that they're getting better every day, when they step off the ice, they even got 1% better at something, they feel more fulfilled in themselves and, and more, more, I think, prone to buying into to the team game. So we try not to separate it. We, we try to just put it all together. It's constant development, and we even let the guys know that we're also developing as coaches all the time. Yeah. Uh, you have that kind of environment in your room, you can build you can build successes off of little things like accomplishing these little goals, getting our power play percentage to this percentage, getting our goals for or our league ranking here. And then when you start accomplishing little goals as part of your development plan, then all of a sudden you start seeing the points and standings board go go in your favor as well. So so it's yeah. uh, it's just an amalgamation of both and it it keeps it keeps me a lot more sane approaching it that way. Cause if I if I uh, compartmentalized both as one development and one winning, I'd probably drive myself crazy and not have a lot of success. So, yeah, I really like what you said there at the start about winning. Can't remember if you use these words, but winning is development. Had an interesting conversation with a coach not long ago about, you know, what about development versus quality development. And I find a lot of teams, um, coaches, organizations often fall in the trap of, look, we're, we're rebuilding. We're not going to be very good this year. We're just going to develop players. or And that can be throwing players out in uh, situations where they don't want to develop, whether it's special teams or important moments in games, um, and on a losing team where it's just almost charity minutes, right? Even on a, on a team where, you know, you're, you're winning or losing and the, the score is not within reach at the end of the game, let's put this player in that position. And are they really getting good development in those minutes because they're nothing minutes? I think players, my belief is players can really only develop when those minutes are important. And that is in a winning environment, when that power play matters, when that last minute of the game matters. If it's just a throwaway season or a game and they're playing in the last minute, um, is it developing them? Yeah, but I really don't think it's 
developing them anywhere near the level it does in a winning environment. Yeah, I agree. I think getting them those, I think I do agree. I think getting them those minutes is more of a comfort thing, you know, like, Mm. so the Ottawa center speak to our affiliate. I think they knew that they weren't going to make the playoffs this year. Um, They actually were quite satisfied with the way their season went. Like they had some really good stretches. Uh, They had some good production from some key prospects and they were putting them in situations that, that made them more comfortable coming into next season. Sure, was there development there? 100%. But there's a reason why people put so much emphasis on playoff experience. There's a reason why in the Stanley Cup playoffs that are going to start in a day, you're going to hear all these stats of they have this much Stanley Cup experience, this many playoff experience, this goalie has this many playoff wins. Because like you said, word for word, when it matters, that's that's when you actually see the true test of, of a player. Um, and it's beyond skill set. It's is what they bring as a, as a person, what they bring as a teammate, how they handle adversity. And winning teams go through all that. They go through good times and bad times and adjustments and adaptations through a season. So I think that's where you develop the most. Um, and that's where we try and develop our players through the course of a season is, is, is putting them in positions to have success and get that comfort, but knowing we're doing it to win and that you have to perform. And if you're not performing, someone else is going to take that spot and having that pressure on your heels, I think really forces you to keep yourself accountable. And that's where you develop as a, as a human being, not just as a hockey player or, or a skill, a skill set hockey player. But uh, you know, there's both, there's both, there's arguments for both sides. You do have to work on, on the intricacies of the game. I just do think at times you can, you can go too much on the skill side. I think one of our challenges as coaches today at the pro level or probably even in the junior level in, in Canada, at least is we're running into a lot of players that don't want to play with each other anymore. Um, Cause they're just so focused on putting the puck through these little tripod things or under sticks and really? stick handling with their head down all summer and one-on-one my one-on-one work, my one-on-one work, my, my private coach, my small group session, like none of them are playing pond hockey anymore. And I know there's probably not a lot of pond hockey in Australia, but, it was something we lived for here in Canada and they're not doing it anymore because they'd rather just work on this little tripod, but now we're losing the sense of playing with other players. So I just think there's, there's no better development than being in those situations where you got to lean on your teammates, use your teammates, identify your options and know that it matters. Like you said, that it matters in that moment. Um, you know, I think that's where great players become what they are. Yeah, uh, man, that's a great point. And, and, it's really tipping, right? Like those, there's so many individual skill coaches and players are putting in so much time to get better. The intentions are, are right, but they're, they're building all these individual habits. Um, and I find, at least here in Australia, the, the level of passing and the level of thinking the game, hockey IQ, hasn't quite caught up to those individual skills. So players will lean on what works and what works is them going under the triangle or tripod and, and, you know, tight turn, cut back and take it to the net themselves versus um, playing another way, which is passing, using their teammates and, and making plays together versus individually. So that's, that's yeah. a great point. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, it's, I think it's important. They still have to do the foundational skill work. Uh, but in season for me, a coach, like we do all functional skills. So there's rare skill sessions where it's a guy just doing an off 
typical course by himself. It's very rare. If, if we do that, it's just a fun day just for the guys to kind of put, put around the ice. We're doing a skill session. It involves two, three guys with two different, two, three different options on the execution uh, before they attack the net because that's, that's game situation and that's where our yeah. development occurs. Love that. Love that. Uh, look, at, at your level, it's such a heavy game schedule, the pro schedule. How valuable is practice time in the East Coast Hockey League? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to come by at times. Uh, there's times that we play five games in seven nights. Uh, and we travel over that course of that seven nights. Uh, we travel to three different cities or four different cities. So it's, it's tough. Um, practice time is really valuable, but it's more about how you use it and how efficient you are. Um, you know, we, once, we hit, once we hit December, we're probably not ever going more than 40 minutes uh, of structured practice. There's always the guys that go on early. There's always the power play, penalty kill, maybe defense forward specific stuff. Um, but the guys don't view that as practice. They view it as the structured practice, like we're running through the drills and, yeah. and getting things done. Um, so you really got to use your time wisely and pick the things that are going to help your team win the next game. So it's valuable in the sense that you don't have a lot of that time and you got to use it in a smart way. So you know, when we hit January, February, I'm actually, I remember at the end of January, my assistant coach and I, we just, we did, we did a 16 day road trip down South through uh, Florida, South Carolina and Georgia. And then we got home and we had played something like four games in six nights with another road trip to like Worcester, Massachusetts. And by the end of January, and we hadn't played our best hockey at that time, at the end of January, we looked at like man we practiced for four total hours this this month four hours and that was over maybe six or seven practices or eight practices mm. it was four hours of practice and we questioned ourselves like did we utilize that time you know well enough did we work on the right thing so it's it's so valuable because there's not a lot of it i know there's even less at the NHL where you're working with more seasoned players older players mm. uh players that need to conserve their energy a little bit more where then at, at you know rest becomes even more valuable in practice at times right so it's uh yeah it's a real balancing act there because you know we play three games in three nights in three different cities from friday to sunday you know, typically we'll have monday off but there's so many times we're like man we got to give tuesday off as well but our next game is on thursday so we'll then we only have wednesday practice and so many things you got to cover so it, it's really honing in on on what's your team needs to get better at and what's going to make you successful for the next game. And uh, because if you try and work on too much, it also kills your team too. Right? And, yeah. uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's still an art. I probably haven't perfected. I'm not sure if I ever will. It's a challenge for all coaches in North America, especially at the pro level. Yeah. Uh, and such, lot, a, yeah, such a moving target. Crazy. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And you try different things all the time. Like you convince yourself, like the rest is awesome. It's going to help us. And the next week you're like, no chance, no chance. Like we're practicing, <laughs> you know, and you know, we're only going to work on two things this practice. And then next week you're like, no, we got to, we got to hammer through, like it's got to be a hard work day and there's no right, right or wrong, it, but that's how valuable the practice time is because there's so little of it. Like yeah. in the month of January, like I said, we had four hours of practice, four hours. That was it. So, wow. it's, so it's well, I guess that being said, like it, at your level, if you want to make a tactical adjustment or even introduce a new team tactic, do you find uh, 
like how do you what do you find more valuable doing it on ice or doing it in a video session uh, i think i think video sessions for us at this level are probably the most critical uh my assistant coach duncan del mayo and i are really big on, on one kind of bringing it full circle to one of the first questions one listening to our players like they have some best ideas the best like we had the a top ranked power play in the ECHL this year and a lot of our successes came from things that are with and you know we we got a couple players David Valerani David Pican they're perennial league leaders in this league they know how to win in this they know how to have success so why not listen to their their suggestions so we did a lot of that and that helped us formulate new tactics but we what I found find has really helped me and helped my players is they love seeing it on video, seeing it work, seeing NHL players doing it or American League players doing it. And then after we've executed or tried it, then seeing themselves. So it's, it's kind of the introduction, the reinforcement, um, and then kind of checks and balances of, okay, did we execute it the way that we had, had seen it? So that's all primarily done through video work. And yeah, we will practice it. We'll run it on ice. Uh, we'll go through a couple of things, but when you get in that second half of the season, the amount of kind of development or buy into adjustments that you make through just the video, video work and identifying opportunities. Um, that's what I think is paramount, especially at the end of the year. So that's, that's what we focus on loss is, is just talking it through uh, rather yeah. than grinding them down on the ice because and then just to, to link it to your, our previous uh, talking point, there's not that much practice time. We're not going to grind yeah. Yeah, them over something new, right? So we have our practice plan and things we got to hit. We're going to try something new. Let's hit it with video first, and then we'll touch on it in the next practice, and then we, we execute and then do more video. Uh, so that's where we, we do a lot of our learning in those video sessions. So <clears> – <throat> For coaches, I guess, ideally, how long or short should a video session be typically? Uh, well, for me, the answer there is, is it depends. I feel like I'd give you a can, I'd be giving you a canned answer if I told you it's five to eight minutes. Cause I think that's like the going rate right now for video sessions. Like right. everyone says a attention span is low, uh, five to eight minutes, a uh, couple clips each thing, and, and then just get out of there. I think there is, some merit in that for sure. I think in our pregame meeting, we're trying to get the guys jacked up, show like five, six clips. I'm in and out five, five to eight minutes. I get my point across. Guys are, are engaged. But a lot of those times, a lot of times those are reminder clips or refresher clips or just kind of notes that we have to kind of touch on before coming to a game. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I'm bringing in a player to do some individual stuff, I'd rather only show them a few clips that we can really talk about and delve deep into those clips. So the, the video session itself might only be three to five minutes, but then the extended conversation or the, the playback of those clips can go longer. And I find that when you do that, rather than hammering a guy with 20 clips, when you only hit him with the three to five, then you've given him one thing to focus on. And now he's more willing to talk about those things. When you overwhelm him with, you got to have better feet. You have to have better stick. You have to have better positioning. You have to be better on the entry. You have to be better on the breakout. You have to be better. Then he doesn't even know where to start when he wants to talk to you. So yeah. you're not getting that immediate feedback from the player as well because you want to literally listen to where they're coming from. So on those individual sessions, I try and keep them really short there. But in contrast, 
I'm gonna be li- I'd be lying to you if I told you there aren't times that I walk into that room and I say, boys, you gotta buckle in right now because this one's gonna be a reality check. And we're going through 20 clips. And typically that's those ones are just based on habits. We just lost the game, or even we won a game, but I didn't like the way we played. I gotta show them about our habits just being completely brutal. And there's times that meeting will go 15 to 20 minutes. There's yeah. times that Duncan, our assistant who runs the D, brings in the D core. And he thinks that our decor hasn't been up to snuff and they haven't done their job. He'll sit them down and he'll rant at them for, for half an hour. I've seen it. It's not, we don't do that a ton, but it happens. So there's no clear answer how long video sessions need to be. Um, but if you're being, if you're trying to, if your goal is to develop someone, try not to kill them with too much stuff. Yeah. Those long meetings, those long meetings I'm referring to are habits. And that's when the, the, the group or the uh, unit or the team needs to be told or be sent a message. And that's just solely around habits and us, like our style of play. If you're trying to develop a player through video in terms of a structure or a skill set or a positional play, then I say just bring it right down. Simplify for that player so you can spark a conversation because that's where that learning, that learning happens. So, I just gave you two different answers, but I hope I differentiated which which video session is required for, at least in my opinion, my style for each. Yeah, no, you totally did. And I think, I think that's great advice for a coach. Um, really good. Look, I want to quickly touch on team tactics. And I'm curious, you, you've uh, working in a league like the East Coast Hockey League, it's it's very modern. And um, with, I imagine a lot of trends either, either starting there getting trialed there you must see a lot of new stuff can you think of is there like a new tactic you've seen whether it's five on five or special teams um or a trend that you've seen introduced to the pro level in recent years yeah there's a couple things the thing about hockey these days is there's not a lot of secrets right there's uh there's so much video and so much studying being done sometimes too much probably that uh you know, there's not much that you haven't seen, uh, but you do occasionally run into a couple things or you see things just catch on and they catch on with one team and they really, they really take off. And then before you know it, every team's doing it again. And then the next new wave of, of system or tactics, something that was done maybe 15 years ago, but it's just new again. But uh, we, in recent times, what I've noticed, and we, we used it last, uh, last season and me personally over the last couple seasons at the pro level, uh, offensively five on five, you know, there's been a real use of, of kind of a bumper position or a middle guy and uh, really, ex- really lengthening his, his uh, reach in the offensive zone to, to spread out uh, the defensive players. So you'll see like Maple Leafs were one of the first NHL teams I really saw like doing it lots of bringing a third man high and it really messes with uh with, with defensive structure because then you're either forcing a low forward or a defenseman to come out high and seeing how teams kind of react to that. So, you know, typically, you know, you always kind of had your guy in front of the net, a guy in the corner, and then a guy in the kind of the slot area, but now moving that slot guy up even higher, like, uh, or, or a guy, the board's coming up high in a flank position. Now you have almost an umbrella in a five on five situation has really, I think caught on in creating a lot more offense and spreading out the offensive zone. And interesting. Again, it was only new for about a week because then all of a sudden everyone's 
started doing it, right? Yeah. Um, another tactic that I've, I've seen really kind of catch on over the last couple of years, two, three years in North America at least, and, and probably because of smaller ice surface, um, is the squeeze on, on tracking. Uh, defensemen simply don't back into their zone anymore. Uh, they don't ride the speed through the dots anymore. Like it's, it's all about persuading a path from the middle of the ice to outside the dots. And as soon as that happens, both D just shift at the blue line and just try and cut it off right there aggressively. And almost using the blue line as a third defenseman to either draw an offside or create a turnover right there at that point. So tracking tactics and the, uh, the defensive aggressiveness on, on those uh, line rushes against have really become uh, a lot more assertive uh, and so those are the two biggest things I've noticed. So one on an offensive side, one on a defensive yeah. side. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm curious with both. Uh, I just want to fire a couple of questions at you. Yeah. With the bumper, do you find it important for that player to, because I think it's really effective when that kind of F3 or middle player can, you know, we call it with our team getting lost, like coming sometimes even out of the zone and back in, it can really kind of throw off defensive zone coverage. Do you find that player is inner, is it always a designated player? Are they interchangeable? And then at times, do they like, is there a positional interchange with the other two forwards to throw the defensive zone coverage off even more? Or is it a designated guy? Uh, no, I don't, it's never been a designated guy, at least for the teams that I've run it with. It's okay. uh, we constantly talk about F3 reload, right? You want to consistently F3 reload. So you at least have that F3 in a spot that if you, you lose the puck, you can track it back and, and try and you know regain possession on the back check. So that tactic still applies in terms of whether it's an F3 reload off a cycle or a guy getting lost in an area. But now it's just more just pulling him a little higher. But there's definitely – I know there's definitely coaches that are, are tinkering with adjustments or even, even like little picks uh, down low where the guy that's on net front gets just switches spots with the F3 guy and all of a sudden you're creating chaos in front. Now that guy comes up higher and is getting lost. Uh, but yeah, it's not a designated guy because it, it's situational based. Like if you have a okay. player that puts the puck out of the corner and he's skating up, up the boards towards his D-man and he passes his D-man, D-man drags middle. That guy who was F3 might sink to the front of the net. And now the guy who passed the D-man comes up like in a high flank, like in power play posture. Yeah, it all shifts. D-man's in the middle, his partner's to his left side, and he's got the forward flanking up. So it's it's very fluid, um, but it's just knowing it's, – it's really knowing how to work as a five-man unit. Like when, when the guy who's in the high slot identifies that happening, then he's got to kind of sink down and be a high tip option or something, get some net presence. So designated hockey is a little bit more, more of a fluid game than uh, yeah. you know, or something like that. But there are aspects of, of those games where you can – create some new things, whether there's some pick plays or just getting in the defense, the defender's way. But uh, we just try and work on those repetitions in practice. So, you know, we, we'll say low to high flank or low to high middle pop, we'll call it, like where the middle guy just comes in between the D. And now the D makes a D to D pass to an actual forward, right? And the guy who thinks he's covering a D comes out to block that forward shot, but now our weak side is trailing in behind. And He's, he's the one getting lost now. Maybe there's a seam pass to hit him or he's the one getting a rebound. So it's just, you know, you work on those repetitions to try and get them to have new, their different options. And then hopefully they get to a point where they feel it off each other 
in game. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's still relatively new, but every team seems to be using it lots. If you if you want to look for clips, look for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They, they they do a really good job, especially that John Tavares line. They whether it's Marner coming up high or Tavares coming up off the flank, they find a way to get three high, and it just mentally crumbles defensive structure. Like they don't know where to you know where to go. So it's uh, you know that's where we pull a lot of our clips from when we're showing our team. That's great. And with that um, defensive concept, like the squeeze or tracking back, are you finding that the one more teams are using that and not kind of taking the, the rush defense like they traditionally would, protecting the dots, skating backwards? Do you find because of that, there's almost, they're almost eliminating that backward skating? Like a lot of teams are attacking it with a forward angle, like angling, surfing, squeeze. Um, do you find eliminate the backward skating is getting eliminated in, in that kind of rush defense sense? Yeah, there are some teams. I know uh, when I was coaching the South Carolina Stingrays, I coached a couple of players from the University of Wisconsin, and they they told me that uh, their coach told told them as defensemen that they actually have to skate forwards. Uh, so there are some teams that are really on one side of the spectrum in terms of that. Um, then there's other teams that have little markers on the ice, like when it when it crosses the red line and you want to squeeze them off and you shift your feet. But there's some defensemen that can really do it while skating backwards as well. The, the key is, regardless of how the defensemen get there, the key is they got to work on unison. So once that middle to, to outside the dots pass happens and that outside deep pressures, it, the squeeze doesn't work unless the middle guy also pressures into the dot lane. And it's a real tough habit to get the guys into, especially traditional defensemen, because it's hard to do that and then your peripheral see a guy on the wide side of the ice wide open and seeing that the forward tracker is behind him. But that's where we use the, the concept of using the blue line as your third defenseman because if you squeeze him at the right moment, you're not going to hit that guy on the wide ice, wide ice because he's going to get – he's going to be offside. So you're buying – by the unison squeeze, you're squeezing the puck carrier on the boards, you're getting over the guy in the dot lane, getting – I say I use the term get his hands on your ass. So you're that close to him. So you're eliminating them there. And then you're buying time for your forward to track over that weak side guy. But he, that's a desperation play if you're executing the squeeze properly. But it yeah. is really, it's really hard for the defenseman because they see it. For us, squeeze is on all the time. A three on two, it's on. Because we're expecting our, our forwards to be tracking back. And we know that when the team is trying to enter through the middle, we're trying to persuade them to kick it to either side. So as soon as that kick happens, we've accomplished the puck going to one side of the ice. Squeeze it on. We don't care if it's an odd man rush. We got to do our job to eliminate it at the blue line. And yeah, does that when things go bad, do they go really bad? Yeah, hundred percent. But uh, it we you have to be that black and white because then if you give them the choice, the middle defenseman will always defer to protecting that perceived lane to that weak side guy. So it's. It's a hard thing to teach. It's a hard thing for guys to grasp. Not every team can do it, depending on your personnel. If you have a decor of big, lugging 6'4", six, 6'5", six, guys that don't have the best skating, but they have great sticks, maybe you do a different tactic, right? But uh, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one for the D to grasp. But once you do it, uh, you get it. But for me, it's never been dictated whether they have to skate backwards or not. It's just the timing and, and doing it in unison. I do know... University of Wisconsin, for instance, they uh, they say that they want their guys angling forward. Other teams just trust their their defensemen that they can do it backwards if they're skilled enough. But we were fortunate this year, 
all our guys were still able to maintain defensive posture facing the puck and the rush coming at them and then just shift in unison. We had some really good skating defensemen with Brampton this year. So, yeah, I think it's depends on your personnel. That's great, though. And I, I, it's funny that, you know, it's, it's really, like you said, it only works when they're working in unison. And I find that's often with most systems, right? Whether it's three-point pressure on the PK, whether it's a four-check, you know, if, if one guy's not enough, he can only go when the second and third guy are going and, and um, everyone has to be connected. Everyone has to be working together. So that's great. Um, lastly, on tactics, do you fa- what's a tactic that you found has stuck with you from all these teams? Is there anything that you've, you look back and you think, man, well, I've been doing that since my days at Lebanon Valley? Or um, is there anything that's just been a staple with the way your teams play? Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything that's gone back as far as LVC uh, because the game itself from I started coaching in 2010 and it's amazing how much just in those 10, 11 years, how much the game itself has changed, right? With the skill and the speed of the game. Um, maybe not so much a tactic, but more a mentality on a certain, uh, a certain structural component of the game. For me, penalty kill has really been a, a, a real pride of mine throughout my entire career, whether I've been an assistant coach or a head coach. I've been fortunate to always work under coaches and now that I do it myself uh, to, have, to learn about penalty kills that apply a lot of pressure. Um, so while the system itself may have been tweaked over my years of coaching, I think that's one thing that's always stuck to me. When I'm running a penalty kill, whether I'm an assistant or the head coach, it's a pressure kill. We in zone, we don't ever want to give anyone time and space and we want teams to earn their goals against us. So we, it's very heavy top-down pressure and D1 out pressure where we, we meet at the, the hash marks and we try and handcuff a guy, a half-wall player. Uh, we have our weak side D that comes right off the, the strong side of the net to meet the goal line guy. And uh, we pressure hard. And again, similar to the squeeze, when there's a breakdown, is it, is it a huge breakdown where we're just solely relying on our, our goaltender? Yeah. But when you got guys working unison, knowing their cues, their pressure cues, it uh, it's really frustrating for for power plays to execute. And I've been fortunate uh, that I've had good players to execute those. My last two years in the ECHL, I've had uh, in the 18-19 season, we had the number two ranked penalty kill in the league, and finished sixth in Brampton. Uh, so it it works when it's done right. But you have to obviously have the personnel and, and great players willing to sacrifice. But I'd say that the mentality, more so than the actual tactic, the mentality of that particular component of the game has stuck with me my entire career. And that started probably at Western Michigan with Andy Murray. It was We were a pretty pressure penalty kill. And, and then moving on to Grand Rapids, working under Jeff Blaschel. Jeff Blaschel actually had, had, had uh, kind of started that at Western Michigan because that was his job before he went with the Red Wings organization. So I was fortunate to kind of work with similar systems going into that. And then when I took my own head coaching job, it, that just stuck with me because it was what worked for me. And, and I loved it. it. We, I felt that we were dictating. We take the advantage out of their hands because now we're dictating what they do. Uh, totally. So that'd be my, my one thing that sticks with me. And not to say that I'll, I won't ever get more passive. You get to the NHL and you got really skilled players that want you to come at them. Right. So maybe I'll <laughs> will change then. Maybe it will. Uh, but, that's the one thing I've been pretty consistent on running my penalty kill is, is just pressure them, make them make those plays. 
I love it. I'm a big fan of pressure myself and there's so much good stuff there. I just want to finish with some quick hitters here because um, you've given a lot of time and, and I really appreciate this for us. But your favorite memory as a coach today? Uh, yeah, my favorite, my favorite memory as a coach or my, my favorite accomplishment was actually winning that gold medal with the uh, Korean U18 team. Uh, for a lot of the reasons that we've already discussed, going in there was my first short-term competition. Um, a new challenge of coaching kids that didn't speak the same language as me, but also trying to adjust the culture of their game of making it more defensive. Uh, we weren't the favorites in that tournament. There was a lot of good teams. Poland was a team that had just been relegated the previous year. So they obviously were expected to, to go right back up and win, you know, win easily. Great yeah. Britain, good team. Netherlands, Croatia had good teams. Uh, there were really no layup games. I guess the, the, the lowest ranked team in that tournament was Estonia, but it just so happened we were playing in Estonia. And when we played against Estonia, there was 5,000 fans there. So they even they had some kind of a competitive advantage. So it was really unique in getting those kids to buy into something new, um, how keen they were to learn. They're, they're very, uh, I guess for the lack of a better term, they're very obedient people. I think it's within their schooling structure, their family structure. Um, you know, after everything you tell them, they bow to you and they, they say yes to everything. I actually had to, I had to make a, when coach Spiros was around, no bowing rule because I was trying to teach them to play with their, with their heads up a little bit more. Um, and, uh, but they were, it was so impressive how much they learned in just a short period of time. And then to go out there and score 38 goals. I think we scored 38 goals over the five games and only give up seven, uh, it was just awesome. And we won that gold medal. None of them expected to do it. And they had this, this really cool routine where when they win, they throw the coach up in the air, like the soccer, soccer <laughs> players do. So I never experienced that. So it was just, it was just awesome. It was my first international tournament. So that was probably my favorite memory as a coach. And I think it surprises people because I was part of a Calder cup championship. I was part of a CCHA championship with Western Michigan, uh, you know, coaching pro players. It's such a fulfilling experience to help them develop, but those U18 Korean kids, like it was just so special. And uh, for a lot of them, it was the biggest moment of their careers. And a lot of them maybe never even played hockey after that. Because after high school hockey, uh, you play college hockey in Korea, but there's only like four or five schools. Uh, so a lot of them, that was it for them. So it was just wow. really a moment. And uh, I loved it. And I'm still Facebook friends with all of them. And it's just, uh, it's really cool. They're a really good kid. So I, I'd say that's number one for me. That's awesome. That's really special. Um... So my next one, your, your most deflating memory as a coach so far. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, uh, I've had a lot of those, actually, a lot of deflating moments. Um, I think at the University of Lethbridge, uh, the 2015-16 season, which was my second year, uh, it was my first really big recruiting class. I'd mentioned to you bringing in those major junior caliber players. So we had a lot of new guys. I think we had 16 new guys. We've kind of had our first dose of success. Like we beat the University of Alberta. We had our, a season sweep. Uh, so you play every team four, four games. We had a season sweep against the University of British Columbia, which was the first season sweep that Lethbridge had probably in five, six, seven years, whatever it was. Um, we got the double digit wins. We were at 11 wins that season. And going into Christmas break, we were a couple points at a second place. So we were about to get our first playoff berth 
Uh, six out of the eight teams make the playoffs. We were about to get our first playoff berth. We felt confident uh, in, I think, six or seven years of the, the program. And we came into the second semester, um, and it, our youth really showed uh, where we just weren't ready. We weren't ready for the step up of competition, how teams got better throughout the year. Uh, you know, we, I think we only won two games out of our final 12, uh, which were 12 games in the second semester. And it came down to uh, the final weekend. We had to play the University of Saskatchewan, which at that, that year they were second in the conference for two games. And we had let um, University of British Columbia, who we beat four games, right? We beat them every time we played them, but we let them get back in the race. And they were playing at Mount Royal University. And all we needed was Mount Royal to beat them once or for us to win one, one or the other. Um, first, the Friday game we lost to to, uh, to Saskatchewan, whatever UBC wins in Mount Royal, and then uh, you know we uh, we went down three three nothing in the second game against Saskatchewan. We came back tied in three three, and we let up a late goal with three minutes left in the third. Saskatchewan ultimately uh, wins, and then I come back into my office and I look. Uh, Mount Royal was up two nothing, I think, going into the third or something like that, and the uh, UBC made a, 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 a drastic third period comeback and and they won, and it was deflating because in the moment it's really easy to be like, damn it, it didn't go our way, like we didn't get the bounce to get the the fourth goal in the third period against U U of S, or damn it, Mount Royal gave up a lead in the third period, but it it wasn't about that. We we lost 10 out of 12 games, right? And so it was easy to get caught up in the moment, but it was really deflating for me because mm. I felt that our youth really showed. Uh, it was a really great learning experience. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't end up making the playoffs, but at the same time, we were really thrilled about having an 11-game, 11 11-win 11 season after only having five the year before and only having two and one prior to my arrival. Uh, yeah. So there was a lot to be happy about. It was probably the happiest a non-playoff coach can be but I was really deflated about the, of the opportunity that we missed out on. And no one expected us to make the playoffs. So I think it just got to us. We had 16 new guys. We, had get, we were getting the taste of success that none of these guys had before at the university level uh, within our program. We had like our first five-game win streak. We beat U of A. We beat UBC four times. And probably had too many beers and too much turkey over Christmas because we just weren't ready. And I was still a young coach. I was a old coach. Second year, uh, you know, as a head coach, but my first year, my team. So I don't know. There's nothing I can pinpoint. Maybe I didn't do something right coming into that second semester to get them ready for the, the elevation of, of tempo and pace and what to expect for that playoff push. And ultimately, uh, we missed out. So that was probably the most, the most deflating, deflating moment uh, of my coaching career thus far. And I've had tons. I've had, I've had a lot. But that, that one – that one hurt because of the opportunity we missed out on. Uh, that's, that's tough. But like you said, so many lessons there. Um, my, my, my almost final one here, but uh, fashion. We work with a lot of young coaches that are, that are real fashionable. And uh, obviously the suits everyone's go to on the bench. But um, what kind of coach are you? If you're just running a, a morning video session with your team, are you a coach that's just in the tracksuit maybe from the morning skate? Or, or do you go with something a little more? 
Yeah, my wife will tell you, my wife and my assistant coach, the two people I, I spend the most time in my life with, uh, would tell you I'm the, the last guy to talk to about fashion. It, it, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not that I don't wear nice things. I just don't care that much, right? So it's, uh, I'm very simple, very bland with my suits. Uh, like I have a black suit and a gray suit and a blue suit, and it's very, not very colorful. I know a lot of guys are getting color, colorful these yeah. And I've, you know, I've, 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 I've tiptoed outside the box a little bit on some things, mainly because it's something my wife has bought. Um, but I keep it very simple, like solid color ties, solid color suits, not a lot of pinstripes and stuff. Uh, at the rink, it's just shorts and t-shirt. Like it's, uh, if we're doing a morning skate and I have our PK meeting in the morning. It's just uh, a shortened t-shirt. We have a lot of afternoon games. Um, sometimes we'll play a seven o'clock game in Pennsylvania and we'll come home for a 4 PM game uh, in Brampton. And, and I'm at the rink all day in those cases, typically on a regular seven o'clock game night, I try and escape the rink for a couple hours, maybe have lunch with the family, get a workout in, then come back to the rink. I think that really helps me. Yeah. Uh, at that point I'll come back to the rink in my suit. So I'll do my meetings in a suit, but on those all dayers, our meeting, our meeting at five twenty, which is, less you know it's an hour and a half before game start i'm still doing it in my my t-shirt and my shorts so it's uh I, i'm pretty easy going with that stuff you know obviously on the road hotels team meals where you know we're we're in our suits and uh looking as good as we can but i i uh, i keep things very simple i take a very presidential approach uh, i think worry too much about what i'm wearing on the bench it's taken away from what i i need to worry about uh, that actually matters so uh, I try and look as good as possible, but I, I'm not the fashionista that some coaches are becoming. It's crazy. Like some guys, it's part it of their is. DNA. It um, is. It is. Nothing wrong with that. It makes Maybe it gets them in the zone and maybe, maybe gets them in the game. But as long as the suit's good material and I look, uh, I look good, that's great for the bench. And then in our locker room, sometimes it's right after a workout too. Like I'm doing the, I'm doing the video session with just the big sweat stain down my, my chest. And, uh, you know, I think the guys get amped up by that. They just these coaches just burning it. You know, so yeah, yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah. it's fine. I don't think I don't think you have to have a dress code for video sessions. But that yeah, that's me. I'm pretty low maintenance. Very good, very good. Yeah. And lastly, if your players had to describe you in one word, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> I guess every player might have a different word, but I'd like to believe it. it it's it's caring. Um, I think. Positively and sometimes negatively, I, I really care about my players. Like they're my, my own blood and my own family. I've been, uh, I've been criticized for it. I, I got fired for the first time after the 18-19 season. After a successful year, we finished third place and we made the playoffs. And I got fired after we got eliminated in the first round. And one of the criticisms I got is that I care too much about the players. And, you know, it was deeper than that because you want to care about your players. But I really believe in relationship building and uh, having open lines of communication and uh, caring about them a lot more than just assets and liabilities and what they bring uh, on ice. You know, I think it's so important to touch as many players every day as you can, uh, but not just hockey specific, you know, they're all in different stages of their lives. So asking guys how their kids are, how the drive in was, or, you know, how their morning coffee was, or just, just, bullshit really about anything uh that gets them off, their mind off of the daily goal or the daily grind 
And some people like that style, some people don't. Uh, you know, the one job I got let go from, they thought I was too personal with the, the players. And, you know, my boss didn't like, didn't like that approach. Uh, but I think here in Brampton, it's really helped. And I built some really good relationships with guys. And, and I, I, I care about players even after I, I don't coach them anymore. If they leave, if I trade them away or if I release them or if they graduate, uh, some of the best relationships I've built with are, are with guys after the fact that uh, have realized kind of what I meant to them or what they meant and me, what they meant to me when I had them. Uh, sometimes it clicks afterwards. Uh, so a lot of my guys are from Lethbridge that are playing in Europe and, and continuing their career in pro. I truly care about every contract they sign. I try and help them everywhere I can to connect them. Uh, you know, even some of the guys that I coach in Lethbridge, I connected them in Australia. Uh, you know, Damian Catlow, Zane Jones, those are guys that I, I really wanted them to land with a good coach and a good spot and make sure that they were not just coming to Australia to, to party and, and enjoy the, you know, all the perks of playing in that league, but, but furthering their, de de their development, their experience. So for me, it's all about caring. And I, and I hope at, at the very least that um, players would describe me that way. So that'd be the word, I guess I would choose, um, you know, and I think, think a lot of the guys would use when they when they describe me as a coach well that's excellent Spiros mate I can't thank you enough um, it's been really great to connect with you there's been a lot of really really good uh, advice kind of stories of experience in there that our coaches will take a lot from um, so yeah I really appreciate you giving us a lot of your time um, and it's been great to connect with you yeah no I appreciate the opportunity it's always great to uh, talk with people and I think one of the unique things about this pandemic is we've learned that uh, we can really connect with each other so easily. And sometimes we overlook that uh, because we're so kind of busy with our day-to-day -day interactions. But now that we've been kind of isolated, we've found new ways to connect with different people. So it's awesome talking to somebody in Australia about a, a game that we both love. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great. And uh, I look forward to getting down under one of these days. Uh, Bert has mentioned me visiting a couple of times. I've connected with uh, there and he says I got to get out there one day too and uh, yeah it'd be a it'd be a really great trip one day and I'd love to catch some AIHL hockey when it's back I know that they missed this season but uh, I'm hoping for it to come back next season and it's uh, it's great stuff believe it or not I've watched a few games online so uh, good luck to what you're trying to accomplish there and thanks for having me